0: Get a call. You're consulted for this patient on the fifth floor who has become vastly unstable. You hear people shouting in the background. Your breath becomes a little deeper. Your heart rate picks up slightly. We need you here now. You hear over the phone more shouting echoes across the line. Then a click. You begin your sprint to the stairwell when a rapid response is called overhead. For your new patient, your breath freezes. Your legs pick up and attempt to bring you there faster. You arrive on the fifth floor. It's empty with no nurse in sight. In the distant corner, you see a crowd of people, a woman wailing in a chair next to your hospital's chaplain. As you rush towards the room, everyone turns to you. You enter and find the patient unresponsive with blue skin. We need you here. Sats are dropping, followed by the heart rate. You've got to hurry. What do you want us to do? A nurse screams at you looks right now. as the room becomes engulfed in a plane of chaos.
1: Oh, Stress. Good old Stress. We meet again. Here we are, at the bedside, in the ICU. You never go away. You'd think that we'd be better friends by now, but you still leave me overwhelmed and crippled. Maybe I'll overcome you just like all the people before me who've resuscitated these sick patients. Nobody else seems stressed. Or maybe that's just my own lack of perception because of you, stress. Have you guys ever been there? I mean, learning how to work in a stressful, intensive care or emergency department environment It's a hurdle that we all have to jump over to take care of acutely ill patients. How do we best manage stress? Does stress even need to be managed? Or is it just something that happens that we can ignore? I think you can probably guess the answer, but we're going to dive right in. So why don't we start off with something that's more of a simple question. What is stress?
0: So stress is an environmental condition that requires behavioral adjustment. It's how you react to what happens.
1: The way I like to think about stress, there's a stimulus that happens or a situation that happens. And your mind undergoes this process of appraisal. And in that appraisal, your brain decides, yeah, this is something that you should be stressed about. And your body responds in a certain way. And stress can be good, right? Like if you put your hand on a burning stove and it's very, very hot, the stress response tells you to take it off and to keep it off. Or if you have to uh, run from a bear, you know what? I think that we should probably stop talking about running from bears as an illustration for the stress response. If I remember correctly, one of my students from Montana told me that you're not supposed to run from bears, right? Is that true? Aren't you supposed to like lay down?
0: Like Jurassic Park style? Like yeah, you're just, just supposed to like... Just like, freeze so they don't see you move any muscles?
1: Yeah. You're not supposed to run. I think that... Are you supposed hel- to make
0: yourself big? Like a scary No, I think you're person. supposed to lay down. Oh. No. None of those sound like they're going to work.
1: So we, I mean, I think we are perpetuating the myth of running from a bear and are teaching about stress. And one of these med students is going to end up dying one day <laughs> being chased by a bear. So... Very med student. <laughs> Let's say that you were running from a honey badger. Honey badger doesn't care. Don't care. The stress response is what allows you to mobilize resources to be able to run away from this bear and maintain that level of activity, that level of alertness appropriately. So the stress response can be good. But what if it's not a bear? What if it's this patient on the fifth floor who needs to be helped? Stress can be harmful. One of the things that I find really helpful to illustrate the impact of stress specifically on performance is called the Yerkes-Dodson law. And the Yerkes-Dodson law, we'll throw a graph of it in the show notes, but it essentially puts performance and stress against one another. So performance is going to be on the y-axis while stress is going to be on the x-axis. And so it turns out that there's a, you know, if you imagine a bell curve that there's a sweet spot of stress right in the middle Do we not want stress? Too much stress isn't good, right? What happens then? Super bored. Yeah, I I mean no stress feeling bored as in not challenged not up to the task You don't feel like you need to invest any of your mental faculties into solving a problem And so your performance is poor on the other hand if you are too stressed then you perceive the task at hand to simply be a threat. One where there's a cycle of, I don't have the resources to deal with this problem. Everyone's judging me. I don't know what to do. Now I feel my stress. Now I really don't have the resources. And it's just a continuous stress cycle where you just freeze and can't perform. And right in the middle is an optimal level of stress where your performance is great. And we call this state the
0: flow state. So one of the things that your mind is trying to do when faced with a potentially stressful situation is appraise the situation and decide, is this a threat or a challenge? And a potentially stressful situation can go either way. And a lot of what it depends on is your mind's assessment of if you have the resources to deal with whatever that situation is. And that resources could be, do you have the knowledge base to handle that situation. I've been in this situation a bunch of times before, so I assess that I have the ability to handle this situation. But resources could also be the rest of your team. If it's a difficult airway and it's night shift and anesthesia is not available and surgery is not rounding in the unit to help you if you needed a a trach or a crike, that could be assessed by you as a threat rather than a challenge. Whereas that same thing occurred on day shift and you've got anesthesia there and surgery there, you might leave that situation excited and thrilled that you guys had a great airway challenge that turned into a really good outcome for the patient. And so resources matter. What the team set up matters because that affects how much resources you feel like you have. If you assess a situation and understand that you personally have the knowledge to handle it and you feel like you have the resources to handle it, proper equipment, proper team, then you'll enter what's called a flow state because you're being properly challenged and you and your team will rise to the occasion.
1: So maybe you're one of those people that says, I get stressed, but stress doesn't impact my performance. First of all, you're wrong and lack insight. But let me try to convince you otherwise.
0: Did you just tell our listeners they lack insight?
1: It was a conditional insult. You lack insight if you feel that stress does not negatively impact your performance. (laughs) I once lacked insight. And uh, I used to believe that performance in the intensive care unit was just about knowing more, about learning more, reading more, listening to more podcasts, and consuming more information so that my knowledge would grow and... The thought behind that was that if I just improved my knowledge, then my threat appraisal would be unstoppable. It would be impossible for me to encounter a situation that I didn't know how to handle it. And it turns out that the universe, and in medicine especially, the universe throws situations at you that you could never prepare for. You can never avoid stress. You can never avoid your team facing stress. And therefore, you need to learn how to deal with it. And learning how to deal with it means that you have to recognize that it will impact your performance. So we teach this airway course quarterly at this point. And one of the things that we talk about all the time is don't paralyze a patient if you've not assessed their airway and made sure that there wasn't something that absolutely would prevent you from getting the tube in. So you think about things like previous neck radiation or previous neck surgery or a gigantic tongue that you can't pass the ET tube past. And so we talk through these lectures and the audience always nods their head and says yes. And, you know, we'll show them pictures. We'll say, would you paralyze this patient? Everyone's like, no. Would you paralyze that patient? And everyone says no. And then we get them in the sim lab. We get them in the sim lab with lights flashing and monitors beeping. And suddenly we tell them the SATs are 90%. The SATs are 87%. And against everything that they know, to be true about who should be paralyzed and who shouldn't. Sure enough, one of our audience members, one of our learners is pushing paralytics on a simulated patient with a gigantic tongue or neck radiation. And in the debrief, we ask them, what made you make that decision? And every time they say stress or other situations, when the saturations get all the way down to 50% and that intubator still has the laryngoscope in the mouth and is trying to get the tube in and is just trying and trying and the whole room is saying, sats are 45% and they're like, almost there. Sats are 30%, almost there. Sats are 25%. And in the debrief, you say, how low did those saturations get? They're like, I don't know, maybe like 90%.
0: Total cognitive overload.
1: They get task fixated. And if you were to ask them if they should let the SATs get down to 30%, of course, they would say no. Stress impacts your performance. And we see this in the sim lab. We see this in real life, too. I can't
0: tell many times when we're running those airway sims, as the person who's coordinating a lot of times, I'll try to go over to the thermostat in the room and frantically turn the, the air down because it gets so hot. And people just afterwards, they always say stuff like, oh, I wasn't that stressed. so That was fun. The room temp rose 10 degrees. Like there was
1: stress in that room. Right. And so I think to a degree, to roll back on my insulting language earlier, that all of us lack insight situationally. And it's something that we all need to recognize and we all need to fight against. So that raises the question, when we encounter stress, not if, when we encounter stress, how can we better handle that? How can we better handle our stress so that we can perform on an optimal level every time? It turns out there's a technique. And the technique is... Beat the stress, fool. (laughs) I pity the fool that don't beat the stress, fool. Beat the stress, fool. Beat the stress, fool. B-T-S-F. It's a mnemonic that stands for breathe, talk, see, and focus. This demonic was taken from Mike Loria. at the time. He was a medical student and previous, I believe he was a para jumper yeah. in the military. And he was on a podcast with Scott Weingart in MCRIT that we will put in the show notes. But he talked about these psychological skills that we can use just in time. They're called just in time performance enhancing psychological skills. So breathe, talk, see, and focus. We're going to talk about these four strategies that you can take home or to the ICU or to your relative clinical environment and manage your own stress in the moment. So the first one is breathe. Surely this is some yoga voodoo nonsense. Breathing's not going to help me with my stress,
0: right? Well, that's where you'd be wrong. And organizations like the military have actually been doing tactical breathing for a really long time. And you probably remember as your kids, your parents telling you to take deep breaths, etc., so just think of this as kind of a, a better advanced version of that. It's something that in medicine we should probably call it square breathing. But essentially what you're doing is you're taking a deep breath in for four seconds. All right, Jeremy, why don't you do it. Ready? Yep. All right, deep breath in for four seconds. One, two, three, four. Hold it for four seconds. One, two, three, four. Exhale for four seconds. One, two, three, four. Hold it for four seconds. One, two, three, four, and then you start the process all over again. So that was one square. I'm doing it with my imaginary finger in the air.
1: Actually, kind of. I feel pretty good right now. Not gonna lie.
0: Yeah, I like to do several of these in a row. Honestly, when I first started doing them, they're really hard to do, at least at first, till you get the hang of it. Maybe it's just because I'm out of shape. But <laughs> what is so nice about these is that's such a long, exaggerated breath cycle that you can not think about anything else during that point except getting your breathing correct. It's literally all you can think about. That's why I like it so much.
1: What, what I like about it is that when you enter a stressful situation and your autonomic nervous system goes crazy, you get tachypnic and tachycardic, your blood pressure goes up. There's really only one physiologic variable that you have control over, and that's your breathing. You can't undilate your eyes. You can't bring down your heart rate directly, per se but you can control your breathing. And I think a lot of times that when you're stressed out, you almost feel like you're in this vessel that you're losing control of. And the way I view it is that taking control of your breathing helps you to kind of restore some of that control and help ground you. And this is in the literature sort of everywhere, uh, especially from a uh, yoga standpoint or a mental health standpoint. This is the Breathing is nothing new. But I think taking it out of Eastern medicine context or, or even out of a military context and into a medical environment where we too have to perform under stress is probably pretty game-changing. I use this all the time. Me if too. Me any too. of my students or any of my trainees catch me in a situation where I'm even remotely stressed and you look at me for long enough, you will see me doing square breathing, sometimes triangle breathing, which is just in, no hold, out, and then hold it. So instead of square, it's triangle, but breathing nonetheless.
0: So give us some situations on shift where you're using this.
1: I do it before every airway and before I push any RSI medications. I do it when uh, I'm running codes. I do it when I don't know what's happening and I'm stressed out or just when I'm stressed in general. If I find that I'm in a situation where I'm frustrated and might respond harshly, I bite my tongue and do some square breathing and find that I can take control of my own stress and my own emotions and perform optimally. What about you?
0: Definitely arguments with the wife.
1: <laughs> well, all she, the things you said. to listen to this. Plus
0: that. But no, uh, I definitely do all the things you just said. I actually also like doing it post big events. So post airway, post arrest. Also, as someone who formerly had challenges with public speaking. I do it before lecturing, etc. So yeah, I use it multiple times every shift.
1: So the first one is breathe. The second one is talk. And this is the one that actually resonated with me the most. This talk concept is positive self-talk. The reason that Mike Laurio put this in his just-in-time performance enhancing skills under stress is that more often than not, if you are stressed in an appraisal situation where you've appraised something as a threat, what's probably happening is, I can't do this. I can't do this. I don't know what's going on. A lot of self-doubt. A lot of negative self-talk. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Amy Cuddy does a TED Talk where she talks about this. Where The tagline of the talk is, don't fake it till you make it. Fake it until you become it. Truly the way that you carry yourself and the way that you carry your own thoughts and mindset become your reality. And so if you tell yourself you can't do this, well, guess what's going to happen? You will perform in a way that demonstrates that you can't do it. Instead, say things like, I have been trained for this. I am ready for this. I can do this. I can help this patient. I am the person with the most experience in this room. The positive self-talk become real, and that becomes your self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: It's super powerful stuff. I've heard it phrased really well before. Think about if you talked to your friends the way that you talk to yourself on a daily basis. Would you have any friends left at that point?
1: <laughs> nope. Nope? I don't think so. <laughs> they would hate me. So breathe, positive self-talk, and next is C. C. C is mental rehearsal, and I split this into two parts. It's both before the event and right before the event. So let's use a cricothyrotomy as an example. Cricothyrotomy is performed, it's a surgical incision in the neck, an insertion of an endotracheal tube through the cricothyroid membrane in a situation where you enter a can't intubate, can't oxygenate, or can't ventilate scenario. So you've failed putting in an airway in the patient. And so you must put one in surgically. You can imagine that that's a stressful situation. Now, the things that you should think about as your mind goes to, you know, let's say somebody calls you for a failed airway. Hey, John, we got a failed airway. As you are walking to this room to presumably perform a crike, you're breathing, you're saying, I can do this. I've been trained for this how are you, what's mental rehearsal got to do with you walking up to this room?
0: Well, if you look in the, particularly in the sports literature, exercise psychology, there's a ton of data for mental rehearsal. They've done studies directly comparing in, in sports as different as gymnastics and basketball. They've compared actual practice to mental rehearsal and they come out essentially even or pretty close to even. And so the act of Thinking through the various steps to do something like a crike is going to have you mentally ready when that one time comes where you have to pull the trigger on actually doing a crike. And it helps you get over that emotional reaction to doing something tough like a crike.
1: So if I was walking up to this room, I would think to myself, I'm going to step on the right side of the bed. With my left hand, I'm going to grab the thyroid cartilage. I'm going to identify the cricothyroid membrane. I'm going to make a midline incision in the neck. I'm going to puncture the cricothyroid membrane with my scalpel and extend the incisions laterally on both sides. I'm going to insert my finger into the cricothyroid space, followed by the bougie, followed by the endotracheal tube. And suddenly there's no surprises in my mind. I know exactly what I'm going to do as soon as I enter that room. And you can do this with anything. If you get called for a cardiac arrest... I'm going to come in and see if there's a code leader. I'm going to make sure someone's doing chest compressions. I'm going to introduce myself. I'm going to establish roles, get compressors and a recorder. You can perform mental rehearsal just in time on the way to whatever you need to respond to so that you can be prepared and not have surprises when you enter that room. And there's value to do this even far before the event. I visualize performing a crike when I'm driving home. Or visualize putting in a central line when I was in training with your eyes closed with no with my I'm driving so my eyes are open but mental rehearsal improves your performance
0: how frequently should we be mentally rehearsing things like that
1: I think that amount should directly correlate with how critical the procedure is and how infrequently it's performed so if you're doing central lines every day as a part of your job, you probably don't need to drive home thinking about the steps of a central line, though it wouldn't hurt. But if you're performing one crike in your lifetime, I might say that you should mentally rehearse or even physically rehearse, simulate that much more frequently. So breathe, talk, see. And the last is focus. Breathe, talk, see, focus. 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 Focus, focus is something that you'll really only derive benefit from if you make this routine a habit. The idea of focus is a trigger word. It's a trigger word that transitions you from stress preparation. So, breathing, positive self talk, mental rehearsal are all stress preparation. But after stress preparation, you have to move to performance. And that focus component, that trigger word, is your transition into performance it's what kind of clicks on in your head so you're ready in your proper mental state to go and do the things that you need to do john do you have a trigger word that you uh, like to use
0: mine is get ready for it boom
1: (laughs) it's boom yep boom boom (laughs) (laughs) is there a story behind that no
0: all right uh not one i can share
1: So if you watch any of the elite athletes in the Olympics, we'll try to include a video in the show notes if I can find it. You'll see them when the buzzer goes off and it's time to, you know, do that triple, you know, pirouette or or whatever. I'm so not a sports Olympic person to actually speak with authority on this. (laughs) But if you watch the camera zooms in on them and they take a deep breath, they close their eyes and say something like, you got this. It is moving from preparation to performance. Everybody else has figured this out, and us in medicine have just said, meh, there's no need to. Mike Laurie's word is focus, John's is apparently boom, Weingart's, which I really like, is smooth. The idea being slow is smooth, and smooth is fast. And I like to incorporate a little bit of positive self-talk into my own, and I like to say, you got this. So breathe, talk, see, focus. Does stress impact you? If you say no, well, you lack insight. (laughs) If you say yes, then it's time to prepare for that stress and perform on an optimal level. Beat the stress, fool. Breathe, talk, see, focus. I pity the fool doesn't beat their stress. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading. And beat that stress.